0: Mm-hmm.
1: Ah! Oh.
2: welcome to radio film school shortens these are many documentary episodes about all things cinema to hold you over into the next episode of the main series a filmmaker's journey if you want to know the origin of the term shortens check the website hi Deho, ho all you heroes and heroines out there in podcast land. As of this recording, the latest superhero blockbuster juggernaut has hit the silver screen with the release of Brian Singer's X-Men Apocalypse. Superhero movies have really exploded as of late, so I thought it would be fun, as well as educational, to do a short ends miniseries on superheroes in cinema. During our summer interim between seasons one and two of the show, we'll have a number of short ends episodes on this topic, and what better time to start than the day after Memorial Day weekend. Now, if you haven't already done so, be sure to check out Muse Story Builder from our show sponsor, Muse Storytelling. Story Builder is an online application and community that will allow you to craft better stories by fleshing out the four essential P's. Plot, people, places, and purpose. You can start a free 14-day trial at buildstory.org. We're also supported by Whipster, a video collaboration service that allows you to efficiently and effectively gather feedback from clients and colleagues. Go to Whipster.io and use the offer code Radio Film School, all lowercase and all one word, and you'll get your first seat for only $13 a month. We thank Muse and Whipster for their support. Now, look to the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. It's a corny sponsorship transition to the main show. Enjoy. one. Take ten. Marker. Action! Adaptation. The art of taking a story in one medium, then retelling or remaking that story to fit a new medium, or a different version of the same medium. The most common adaptations are books adapted to film or television. You can have plays and musicals adapted to film, TV programs adapted to film, films adapted for television, short films adapted for feature films. You can go the other way around with feature films adapted to stage plays. Disney's The Lion King comes to mind. One area where you see a lot of adaptation, particularly in the last few years, is comic books to movies. This year alone, there are seven major motion pictures adapted from superhero comics. Uh, There's Deadpool, Batman v Superman, X-Men Apocalypse, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Suicide Squad, and Marvel's Captain America Civil War and Doctor Strange. We just can't seem to get enough of superhero movies. And based on the slate of films laid out by Disney's Marvel and Warner Brothers DC, the trend is not going to slow down anytime soon, with plans laid out as far as the year 2020. Well, today we're going to look and talk about adaptation, specifically how it relates to superhero movies. But the lessons learned have a wide range of applicability. I'm Ron Dawson, and this is Radio Film School Shortens, our superhero cinema series special. That's a lot of S's. No matter how old you are, I'm betting you recognize this classic theme by living legend composer John Williams. It is the theme for Superman. I remember the first time I saw the 1978 classic directed by Richard Donner. Just like the advertising promised, I believed a man could fly. At the time I wasn't a super huge comic book fan or anything, no pun intended, but I was a big enough fan to know Superman. I mean, come on, who didn't know Superman? Supes was a hero that had existed in all major media forms since practically the dawn of superhero comics themselves, and his first appearance in Action Comics No. 1 exactly 78 years ago in June of 1938. Since that time, he's been seen in multiple media formats, from print to the small screen to the silver screen.
3: beating bullets, more powerful than a locomotive in the great hall of the justice league there are assembled the world's four greatest heroes created from the cosmic legends of the universe superman
2: the hell that
1: <gasps> easy miss i've got you you you've got me who's
3: got you
2: he even made it apparent in the hit sitcom I Love Lucy 60 years ago this past January.
3: Of oh, all the like crazy things that you've done in the 15 years have been married? Yes, Do you mean to say that you've been married to her for 15 years? Yeah, 15 years! And they call me Superman! <laughs>
2: But something happened along the way of Superman movies that plagued it. That 1978 Superman was made iconic by the chiseled goat looks of the late, great Christopher Reeve. He would go on to don the red cape a total of four times. The fourth and final time was in Superman IV The Quest for Peace, which some place in the family of worst films ever made. Ten years ago this summer, X-Men director Brian Singer brought Supes back in Superman Returns. I actually liked the movie, starring fashion model turned actor Brandon Routh. Kevin Spacey chewed up the scenery as only Spacey can as Lex Luthor. But despite having a relatively decent Rotten Tomatoes score of 76%, the film is generally looked at as a disappointing return. Which is why that was the one and only time we've seen Mr. Routh in the iconic Blue Spandex. Then in 2013, Watchmen and 300 director Zack Snyder directed what many thought would be the quintessential Superman flick, Man of Steel. I remember when the trailers for that film came out. Every subsequent trailer seemed better than the last. Goodbye, my son. Hopes and dreams travel
0: with you. He'll be an outcast. They'll kill him.
2: How? He'll be a god to them. British actor Henry Cavill had an uncanny resemblance to Reeve. And the rest of the cast was top-notch, with Russell Crowe playing jor Amy Adams as Lois Lane, Kevin Costner as Jonathan Kent, Lawrence Fishburne as Perry White, and Michael Shannon as Zod. No offense to Shannon, who played a great Zod, but Terrence Stamp will always be Zod to me.
3: Come to me, son of jor Kneel before Zod!
2: Yet when Man of Steel came out, it had significant criticism, particularly from die-hard Superman fans who felt the actions of Superman at the end of the movie were out of character. Now, spoiler alert if you haven't seen Man of Steel... But at the end, he kills Zod. Snaps his neck. Right in half. Superman is not supposed to kill. Which, personally, I never quite understood that argument for this movie because it's Superman 2 from 1980, a movie that is beloved by fans, once Zod's powers are removed, Superman crushes his hand, lifts him up, and throws him into a bottomless pit. Think about it. In that movie, Zod is rendered a mere mortal. He can do no more harm to Superman or anyone else for that matter. Yet Supes crushes his hand anyway and throws him down to his presumed death. No one seems to have a problem with that movie. Yet Man of Steel saw it is still as powerful as Superman and is slated that he will never stop killing people. You can't put him in prison, so Superman had no choice. Yet this film pisses off Superman fans to no end, and I'm at a loss. Anyway, as you know, the latest installment of Superman hasn't fared any better. Batman v Superman starring Henry Cavill returning as the Man of Steel and Ben Affleck as the Cape Crusader despite making over 800 million dollars worldwide has been deemed a critical failure and a box office disappointment and has caused a major shakeup at Warner Brothers. So what does this long history of Superman have to do with today's topic? Well, everything. Because the issue at hand From that very first Max Fleischer cartoon to Zack Snyder's brooding and dark cinematic opus, is adaptation. What, in your opinion, makes a good comic book adaptation? Um, Is it a movie that is like close to the source material? Or is it a movie that, regardless of whether or not it's close to the source material, is just really good? Well, I th- Both. Like, like, you know, what do you feel makes a good comic book adaptation?
1: Well, I think that the same thing that makes any great fantasy movie, and by, by definition, any great movie at all. It first and foremost comes down to characters and story.
2: That's the voice of Robert Meyer Burnett, a 20-plus year veteran of Hollywood. Rob is a DGA director, editor, frequent co-host on the popular YouTube show Collider's Heroes, and a voracious comic book reader and self-proclaimed comic geek. He's been a Star Trek consultant to Viacom, and is currently directing the Star Trek fan film Axenar, which has raised over $1 million on Kickstarter and Indiegogo combined, and until recently has been embroiled in a lawsuit by CBS and Paramount. But that's a story for a future episode of the show. Today, Rob is talking comic book adaptation.
1: Now the fact is, you might be making a movie about Captain America. But you better show Captain America as a very three-dimensional, living, human, living, breathing human being that has all the concerns that the rest of us have. We as an audience have to recognize ourselves somewhere in our superheroes to identify with them as people. You know, Superman, the, the interesting thing about, about Superman uh, is that we want him to be this larger-than-life guy. But when you see him on the movie screen, he has to have an element of humanity in him. And and he has to. And yet we get mad when he does something like kill Zod in the end of Man of Steel. It's so silly. Like I've said to people where exactly Superman's been Superman for all of a week in this movie. (laughs) Whereas in Superman, the movie, Christopher Reeve has been learning everything, all the 28 known galaxies. He's been in the Fortress of Solitude for 12 years, learning everything Jarell packed away on those crystals for him. Right in in man of steel he he didn't know that he was from an alien planet i mean he might have he had an inkling of it but he didn't know there were other kryptonians out there he didn't even know what it would be like to fight he's never really fought anybody so it, it's all it was all a big learning curve yeah. and i think that um that uh you, you know i think what makes a great comic book movie again great characters and great story that are believable and it's like even when you're dealing with superpowers or science fiction concepts you have to make sure that you play. You set up rules, and then you play by those rules. And and when if you don't, your movie falls apart.
2: How closely does a comic book movie need to be to the source material to be considered like a good one? Like, let's say you had a, like a really great uh, comic book movie that has great story, great characters, um, but it's like a hundred and eighty degrees from what the comic was like. And let's say it's a comic that you're a fan of. Even though you can recognize it as a good movie, would you personally call it a good comic book movie if the comic it's being adapted from is totally different than what the movie they created?
1: Well, I do. I think, look, comic books are a different medium than motion pictures. And I think that when, you're, when you do any kind of adaptation, you're adapting. And you have to think of the medium that you're working in. For instance, The Watchman is one of my favorite comics of all time. But I was not a big fan of the movie because Zack Snyder was slavishly recreating the comic book. It wasn't very satisfying because ultimately, the Watchmen comic is a whole meditation and riff on comic, the comic book medium itself, and and the the idea of like, for instance, as much as I like the opening credits of Watchmen, when you see those Golden Age characters in action. Mm-hmm. Like Mothman, who's wearing a ridiculous outfit with stupid wings that don't do anything, that doesn't work. You know what you're looking at. I'm like, that, that, I don't believe that anybody would dress up that way. <laughs> right, right. Cut to, cut to Captain America the First Avenger. When you see what Captain America was wearing into battle in World War II, it's clearly Captain America, but it's a paramilitary uniform that's built for battle. And I believe. Captain America wearing though he's not wearing red white and blue spandex, but he's wearing a uniform that I believe in. Now that is is it right out of the comic books? No, but they've adapted the Captain America concept into a much more real world version of what a World War II soldier would need to go into combat, and it works. That's the that's the key. It's 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 not being slavishly uh having slavish fealty to a a comic book, you know, a four four-color fantasy on the on the newsprint page, but it's the idea of what Captain America is and you translate it over. And there's a lot in Watchmen to like, but the story doesn't resonate with me because it wasn't enough of an adaptation. It doesn't work the film medium enough.
4: For me, I think the biggest thing is, is um, and we were actually talking about this on Shmoe's No last night. Oh, really? Okay. What I dislike is when the set pieces and the action scenes are there for the action, as opposed to to progress the character.
2: That's the voice of Sasha Pearl Raver. Sasha is quite the character herself. She's an actress, movie critic, and television journalist who's interviewed dozens of the biggest stars in Hollywood. Take the spunk and feistiness of Bette Mittler's character in Beaches, combined with an encyclopedic knowledge of movies and television, and there you have Sasha. She, too, is a co host on a Collider show, specifically Collider TV Talk on Mondays, as well as the movie review channel Schmoes No, and she's the co host of FX Movie Download. Among other things, I talked to Sasha about superhero movies. And what makes a good one
4: the thing that i think the russo brothers did so brilliantly in civil war is that every piece of action propels plot and and explains character develops character um and that's the problem is i feel like in certain movies the action set pieces grind the story to a halt and there's like boom bang boom bang but nothing really happens to make you care any more or any less about anybody involved so it feels a little bit meaningless I think that's really important. I also think that great character development is important. More than anything, though, I think the thing that Marvel gets so right is the tone. Um, And the tone I love from them is that it's comedic, and it also is quick-witted, and it's also really... It's really smart. Um, But when you look at like The Dark Knight Rises or The Dark Knight more specifically, because actually I had some issues with The Dark Knight Rises, what I think they did so brilliantly with the tone there was grounded in the grittiness and the darkness and the misery of this character. But then also you cared so deeply about his quest and the Joker was so diabolical but felt so real and was so grounded. So it's a combination of truth and tone, character development, action that drives development and a real sense of purpose. And I like a good bad guy. I don't like when the bad guy, like I had a lot of issues with Ant-Man because as much as I've loved Corey Stahl on house of cards, he felt so superfluous in that movie. And I thought Ant-Man was fantastic in civil war, Mm -hmm. but his standalone movie for me outside of Michael Pena fell really short. You have to have three-dimensional characters. Also with The Dark Knight, like he has so much complexity that that's what you love watching. And you love watching his misery and his own suffering because it just makes him that much more interesting.
2: Sasha's comment about Batman and The Dark Knight is a great segue to my next guest. A filmmaker who made a Batman movie himself, I asked him which Batman he likes more, Tim Burton's or Christopher Nolan's.
5: Well, oh, that's a loaded question.
2: Of course it is.
5: It it, it is, it is. And (laughs) And you have to
2: give me an answer.
5: Yeah, I will give you an answer, but let me, let me say this first.
2: Sure. That's Brett Culp. Brett was already quite a star in the wedding event industry, but he garnered a more public level of fame and popularity with the release of his documentary, Legends of the Night. It's a film that looks at how the legend and story of Batman inspires and encourages those living with or suffering from life-threatening or debilitating illnesses. Shot largely with a Canon T2i, and after two successful crowdfunding campaigns, the film was self-distributed theatrically using the service Tug, and currently can be seen on Netflix. Brett was even invited to be on Kevin Smith's popular podcast, Fat Man on Batman. Here's Brett talking about the evolution of Batman over the years. Here's
5: the amazing thing about Batman. Yeah. I think more than almost any character that has ever existed... Potentially in history. I don't know in history, but modern history, let's say. Mm -hmm. This character is like, you could almost call him Plastic Man instead.
2: (laughs) What do you mean by that?
5: Well, he can move and bob and change and alter and still be the most popular superhero in, in the world. You know, he works as a campy, silly, like what you described. And he was... You know, we look at it now and laugh, but at the time, it was one of the most popular shows on television. I mean, it was a huge hit uh, at the time, and it's one of the reasons why we're still talking about Batman today, because of the impact of 1966 Batman with Mm -hmm. Adam West. So it worked as camp. You know, then Tim Burton takes it, and essentially it's a movie that is completely driven by character, And by imagery, you know, that 1989 Batman movie, if you were to describe the plot of that movie, you would look at yourself and say, what is even the plot of this movie? I'm not even sure. It doesn't even hardly have a plot. It's just continued scenes of Batman and the Joker fighting each other. I mean, that's practically what it is, just like 15 of them strung together, Mm
2: -hmm.
5: you know, but it's not about that. It's a movie about elegant imagery and you know, pushing design and creating weird, interesting characters. I mean, this is what Tim Burton does in all of his movies. Yeah. And so, And Batman is not only adequate to the challenge, Batman is like, uh, you know, looks like he was born for that. I mean, looks like perfect in that. Really, just as perfect as he looked in 1966 for camp. Then Christopher Nolan takes him. And turns him into a post nine eleven parable, and it, it makes him a sophisticated, you know, narrative that that is nuanced and complicated, and you know, created for a more adult audience. And here's these movies that you can dissect and analyze from a literary and cinematic level, and you know, and, and then he create. I mean, it's it. Those movies are masterpieces unto themselves not only as action adventure movies but as dramas and and batman not only works okay for that he's like you know rocks it kills it and so you know that's what i mean with batman's plastic man it's like he can do all of that superman is not that plastic superman doesn't work in every situation you could possibly put him in, he works a certain way. In my opinion, Superman works best when Christopher Reeve plays him. You know, that that's Superman to me. He's mm-hmm. not that kind of elastic character in my judgment. Yeah. So, so that's the uniqueness about Batman and what made him perfect for what we did with Legends of the Night. Now, that said, I love Tim Burton's Batman. I love Christopher Nolan's Batman, but... I'll answer the question this way. The greatest action-adventure movie ever made in history is The Dark Knight. Not only the best superhero movie, in my judgment, the best action-adventure movie ever made. So, how's that for an answer? I do think that nearly everybody that works under Batman... Has a whole bunch of baggage that is brought by not only past stories but also by expectations of the people who own Batman about what Batman can and should be Um, so I think there are definitely some limitations but in my judgment they're not limitations from Batman they're just limitations from the people who are the custodian and owner of Batman about what they they want that brand to be Mm -hmm. Um, you know So I think there are some, but, you know, when I was doing Legends of the Night, I mean, at the end of the day, Legends of the Night is an expression of my Batman. I mean, I just explained, you know, Tim Burton's Batman and Adam West's Batman and Christopher Nolan's Batman, but my Batman, as expressed in Legends of the Night, is something totally different. And people have asked me, well, which Batman is in your movie? And I say, well, it's not the Batman you ever see. My Batman, you've seen in movies before. My Batman is the six-year-old kid who puts a cape on and goes into the backyard and pretends they're Batman, and mm-hmm. you know gets to the top of the playground and looks out over the city and imagines the hero that they could be. Right. That's my Batman. That's and that to me is the most important Batman. And that Batman has absolutely no limitations, no nothing that hems them in. It, it's it's whatever we can imagine batman to be is what he is and i think that's the way we are as heroes you know that we might look at our lives and say well i can only be this well the truth is that we can become whatever hero we can imagine ourselves to be within every story we do feel some limitations but i think most of those become from powers beyond us And I think as storytellers, when we look at things, we can always find new ways, fresh ways of telling every story.
2: I think those final words from Brett best hit the nail on the head. As storytellers, we can always find new and fresh ways to tell stories. An adaptation does not need to, as Rob put it, slavishly adhere to the original source material. In fact, in some cases, that might actually hurt it. I guess it's no surprise that the answer to the question is the same answer that comes up again and again on this show. Serve the story. When adapting a work of art for film, don't be afraid to make changes, even major changes, if those changes, one, are better suited for the medium to which you're adapting, two, add to the character development, and three, propel the story forward. Obviously, there needs to be enough of the original source material still present to keep your adaptation grounded in the original, but if you maintain that foundation, honor the spirit, and serve the character in the story, I have no doubt your adaptation will be super. Stay tuned past the credits for a usual bonus segment. Radio Film School is a production of Dare Dreamer FM. This episode was written and produced by yours truly. Chris Hushledge is our co-producer. Radio Film School is a proud member of the Podcastica Network. Think of it as an indie label of pop culture podcasts, with shows like The Walking Dead cast, Game of Microphones, and Once Upon Podcast. If you're a comic book fan, check out Under the Comic Covers, a show geared towards indie comic titles. You can find all the Podcastica shows at podcastica.com. Aside from the movie and TV clips, of course, music for this episode was curated from freemusicarchive.org. Links to tracks are in the show notes. I want to thank our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, Muse Storytelling by Still motion They've come out with a new online app and community called Story Builder. I've been playing around with it, and I think it can really change and improve your process for telling stories of any kind. You can even collaborate with people from across the globe. Like-minded individuals who have never even met can now come together to build something remarkable. Just go to buildstory.org and sign up for your free 14-day trial. No credit card is required. We're also supported in part by Webster, the leading video collaboration tool. Upload your video to Webster and you can start collecting feedback from clients and colleagues. If you're a Premiere Pro user, upload videos directly from within Premiere, then save comments back into Premiere. Use the offer code RADIOFILMSCHOOL, all one word and all lowercase, and you'll get your first seat for just $13 a month. Go to webster.io and start collaborating like a pro. You will be my superhero if you give this show a rating and review in iTunes. Just fly on over to daredreamer.fm slash iTunes to see how. You can follow me on Twitter at DareDreamerFM, and you can follow the show at Radio Film School. That's it for this week. Be sure to tune in next week for our Hitchcock episode. Until then, remember, if the story sucks, I don't care what you shot it with or cut it on. Here's a clip from the comedy movie review show Nostalgia Critic on the YouTube channel, Channel Awesome. The two movie characters are debating about Man of Steel and discuss the most controversial scene in the movie. Despite the comedic and silly tone of the show, it has a surprisingly profound summary and balanced outlook on the movie. I'll link to the full video in the show notes, but I think you'll appreciate this short preview.
0: Superman gets him in a headlock, but Zod vows to make what he supposedly cares for most suffer. Don't do this! Even though there's about three or four different ways those people could probably get out of there. Uh you have to admit, Soup, this isn't all me. These people are just kinda idiots. Never <laughs> Thus we get our biggest controversial moment in all of the movie. Superman breaks Zod's neck. <laughs>
3: You know, I'm not gonna lie, when I first saw that scene, I hated it. But the more you really think about it, this is a really bold choice. Because ultimately it lets Zod win. It plays again to a young and inexperienced Clark and how he knows his actions will have huge ramifications.
0: Yes, yeah, because having the city nuked didn't have enough ramifications.
3: Point being, it's a catalyst now for why he will never ever take another life. The fact that he had to do it to one of his own people, one of the last remaining Kryptonians. At that moment, he not only chooses to be human, but he makes the ultimate sacrifice for humanity. And he also makes himself forever alone. I agree. Ha, I knew you'd say that. Wait, what?
0: Yeah, surprisingly, the most hated scene by so many fans actually didn't bother me that much. I mean, keep in mind, we saw Superman kill Zod in the second movie and no one had a heart attack over that. And on top of that, even though it could have been illustrated better, I like the idea they were going for. That you won't always have answers to situations that are always epically pleasing. It's actually a very difficult, very hard thing to come to grips
3: with. But I get what you're saying. You're actually saying we agree on the neck break, then? I think so. The one part most fans universally hate, we actually think is okay?
0: For the most part, yeah.
3: So does that mean you actually like it, Critic? I still think this movie is awful! Oh, come on, man! Huh? No, I'm sorry, I just think
0: it's terrible! There are some things I like. All the actors to play these roles are good choices. The action scenes are awesome. And though I like the more upbeat Superman, I'm open to the idea of a darker version. But these characters have no identity. Outside of their job and how they look, you wouldn't even know that this was Clark Kent or Lois Lane if they didn't call them Clark Kent or Lois Lane. The millions of subplots are not needed and get in the way of any emotional connection we want to make. The incoherent storytelling is pointless and annoying, and as a superhero, he lets way too many people die in this. Even if he took Superman's name off
3: of this, I still wouldn't like this stupid, illogical mess. I think you're totally wrong, Brynick. Everything you just said, Those characters seem boring to you because they're not as over the top or single noted as the comic book ones or the Christopher Reeves versions. It's a new kind of Superman that needs a less cliched character, okay? It needs a tougher and darker outlook because we've seen the other Superman stories already. Those are still there and by putting the in these morally confusing lessons, that you call illogical, I see them as challenging. And there's no way to save every single buddy like in previous movies and always get your way. There's just a man struggling between what it means to be human and more than human. And trying to do the right thing. Yet he still manages to rise above it and save us all. This movie is awesome.
0: I think I understand now. Joe. I will never like this movie. I think it's an insult to everything Superman stands for,
3: and I will never understand how you could actually like it. Oh, nice.
0: But just because I can't see how doesn't mean I can't understand why.
3: Oh, because I'm a blood-hungry psychopath, right?
0: No! I mean, you are, but that's not why I think you like it. When I see this movie, I see people dying for the sake of getting violent, craving teens in the seats. But that's not what you see you see one of your favorite superheroes being tested and put through a greater challenge than ever before. And by having him witness and go through so much intensity, it makes his challenges seem greater and his struggle all the more interesting. For you, and probably a lot of the people that enjoyed this movie, you're seeing the Man of Steel go up against some of the greatest evil they he's ever gone up against, because of how much damage he does. So when he rises up, you can feel all the more proud of what a terrible thing he's stopped. It's not craving dark, horrible things like a maniac. It's seeing someone fight against those dark, horrible things. And not just through him holding heavy stuff, but by standing up for what he feels is important. I don't see the same thing, but at the very least, I know that's what you see. So, as long as you're viewing it because you want to see the best of strength and kindness rise up against the worst of oppression and force, all I can say is, go
1: ahead and enjoy it, man.
3: Thanks
2: for understanding.